From Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello again, I'm your host Chris Pace. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers, as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavours, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types, or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. And because of threat and security stuff from recent weeks, this is a special episode focusing on ransomware. I'm joined by my three guests as a service, Kev Breen, Paul Bentham, and Max Vetter. Hello. Hello. So, and you can't fail to have known that ransomware suddenly is, I mean, we, obviously in cyber, we have been saying ransomware is everywhere for, like, years. But now the world is suddenly saying ransomware is everywhere and it's being taken extremely seriously in lots of different parts of uh, of government um, we've seen uh, attacks on critical infrastructure um, we've seen uh, attacks just recently that have resulted in uh, ransom payments of millions of dollars um, it all just feels like everything's ramping up and I think we alluded to this in uh, a couple of episodes ago uh, this kind of tipping point in the life of ransomware um, and having thought about that afterwards we thought you know what we should just we should do a little ransomware special and talk about things like the history of ransomware, how modern ransomware works, how targeting happens, how do they get inside organizations, uh, whether people should pay the ransom or not. All of those kinds of things we're going to explore. And we're also going to talk about all that stuff in the context of a load of news that has come out this week. So shall we head right back to the beginning um, and take a look at the the history of ransomware. Now, depends who you ask. Some say that the first ransomware uh, was from 1989, and it was a floppy disk sent through the post. And basically, it popped up on your screen and said, I've locked your computer now. If you send me some money, um, then I'll send you an antidote, effectively. Um, and really, ever since then, it has is, it is evolved from... Um, and actually it's evolved to uh, ransomware as a service, which I think is probably, um, I guess, the biggest distinction in terms of, you know, where we are today, that ransomware as a service has meant that essentially anyone can do ransomwareing. And I suppose that's where that's where we've arrived. But Kev, you got any other examples of like interesting, interesting ransomware? I remember fake antivirus was big back for a little while back in the 2010s. That was a big thing. Yeah, like if we go back to the point where it really started to affect people, like broadly, uh, then there's a few things we can we can identify as like the precursor to the mortis ransomware. So, uh, DDoS for hire um, is a form of ransomware. Uh, so the Armada Collective were really good at this. They would blast email you, saying if you don't pay us whatever they demanded, then they're going to send so much traffic they will shut your websites down. So if you're somebody like Amazon, that's going to have a big effect on you because if visitors can't access your web platform. So that's kind of one element. As we get closer to ransomware, we we had a period of three or four years where scareware was all the rage. And again, it didn't really encrypt anything, but you'd download some pirated software or an MP3, or you just visit a, a website, you'd click a link, and then your screen would go black and it would say either 
Interpol have locked your computer because you've got uh, fake software on there, or uh, the FBI have seized and locked your computer because we found child porn uh, on your laptop. So it's all about scaring. And for if you just send us $300 via UPAC, the FBI will release your computer to you. Fake antivirus was kind of the same. It was like, we have detected a million billion viruses on your on your computer. <laughs> you should go and download this better antivirus than the one you've got. Um, and, uh, and it only cost like 300 bucks or something like that. I always got confused why those wouldn't just like also infect your computer. Like if it's sending lots of pop-ups, <laughs> clearly it's, I assume it's more har harder to, to hack your computer. But yeah, it was like, well, just close your browser down and then it goes away. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, from there, the early ransomware would target individuals. So you'd send an email blast out to 10,000 people. Uh, they opened that exe file and that exe file just went straight and encrypted your personal files. Um, and the ransoms were fairly small. And, and what that, that, that encryption, so, uh, you know, obviously some kind of encryption, but we're basically saying that that would be the kind of encryption that if you knew the tool to look for, you probably could have decrypted it. Uh, yeah, so it was, the crypto wasn't the best. Uh, there were lots of decryptors for it. Uh, and the ransoms were fairly small. Like they ran in the tens of dollars to hundreds of dollars. Mm. Um, but they relied on like affecting a wide range of people. And then we saw them transition to actually, you can make some big money if you target uh, enterprise. But then they were like, well, the decryptors, like the security for those, like goes up a level. Like we're not just talking about standard AV. So they had to invest in real, like better crypto, where we, which is where we see them using uh, public private key encryption uh, to good effect. Like that stuff is hard, if not impossible, to recover from. So. Uh, and that's where we end up now with ransomware as a service where there are 10 like really top tier ransomware operators who will rent out their infrastructure uh, or invite affiliates to go and do the initial infection and then the operators will take over deploy the ransomware and then give the affiliates a cut for getting them that that initial feet on the ground they're trying to understand something about the way that the ex you just described the execution of the ransomware how uh, do security tools detect and stop that like if i've got antivirus installed my expectation would be that if someone tries to deploy something malicious on that on that machine that it should stop it is there something about what they're deploying that makes it look like a perfectly normal thing going on and so therefore it doesn't block it uh, not really so uh, what we tend to find is uh, they use traditional infection uh, techniques to get onto your device. And normal AV is very signature-based detection. Uh, so we see the, the malware is always obfuscated, encoded, or encrypted to defeat those kind of things. So it's only with a next-gen uh, AV or an EDR where you're actually going to detect those behaviors because that's, mm. that's what you recognize. And then... That we, we hear a lot of uh, lol bins, so living off the land binaries where they're using Microsoft's internal tooling in the same way that an administrator would, just with malicious intent. And then the final act is, I've got admin credentials now, so I can turn off your yeah. antivirus, and then I deploy my ransomware and away it runs. So it, it, we're thinking about this modern ransomware as a service. So there's a lot of affiliates, right? So, so there's a lot of either individuals or criminal groups who basically become um 
who essentially become affiliates, so they become users of that software in a way. How many would you say, or do you think there are kind of actual ransomware creators, if you like, like those that actually build the software, provide the application to manage it, all that kind of stuff? How many of those are there? Um, there's probably like hundreds at most but if we're talking about the actual top tier ones mm. uh, you're probably looking at like 10 to 20 dedicated like hardcore like if you think of it like a uh crime syndicate mm. so it's very much in that pyramid style so there's a couple of people right at the top and that's they own the malware author and they will keep that very tight because that's the thing they're interested in um, and usually, is that one? In, is that one individual? Is it one individual who's, or you know, a small group who are writing the malware and then kind of being owned by the group by the criminal group? Yeah, it's, it's usually yeah. how we see it. So um, the like, there's a couple of ways that either. So if I want to set this up, uh, I turn around to uh, Paul and say, Paul, I think we can make loads of money by ransoming people, and then we go, we need some ransomware. So we go onto the dark web uh, and we find Max and Max is a malware author and we say, Max, like I'm going to buy you uh, and your malware and you can't yeah. give it to anywhere else. So he now comes in as my developer. Um, me and Paul start putting um, like the forums, the dark websites. We start, we actually start interviewing affiliates uh, to do that kind of stuff. So it does very much become like a, a company service wrapper business model. Um, and that's that's how those top tier ransomware uh, operators behave. And the affiliates themselves, what's the bit that they do then? Are they the actual hands-on keyboard usually? Uh, the initial thing. So uh, if we take um, like JBS, if we take uh, Garmin, um, what it will be is uh, they will hire in like hundreds of affiliates, and they'll say, "Just go and get companies." Like here's uh, targets. Um, uh, we want to just go and get an in initial infection on them. They will then go and do whatever they can to get into them. So they will use all of the techniques of phishing, spear phishing, uh, RDP brute forcing, like service exploitation. They'll try all of those ways to get in. And when they do, they'll then come back to the ransomware operators and go, hey, I'm in here. Do you want it? Uh, and the ransomware operators will go, yes. And then that's typically they'll do like a, a handoff where the ransomware operators will take control or provide them with the ransomware to uh, to deploy. Uh, and then the the actual operation service with full help desk support uh, then takes over the uh, negotiation phase, the receiving the, the payments and uh, handing over the decryption keys. Do they, um, yeah, do they, when they're going in, uh, and that, and doing that handover, they are literally they're literally hands on the keyboard. This is something that I think we covered early on in this. I in my head, these ransomware things were sort of uncontrolled like explosions. And probably because like WannaCry was like that, wasn't it? It went on and it just just wormed its way. But these ones aren't typically wormed ransomware are they the ones that we're seeing now nowadays yeah no they're they're really targeted really specific uh so if you take a look at dark side uh ransomware group who have just been put out of business uh they actually have uh dll files uh so it's not something you can double click and run like you have to install this as a service or you have to execute this in a special way 
um and like we see them they're not self-replicating they will always target network shares and things like that but they don't like self-replicate across the network because the attackers have already spent days or weeks in the environment and they've positioned themselves for maximum effect in one go rather than relying on the hope that something will self-replicate well can we talk a little bit about the nature of the targeting because although we see obviously it's it's businesses that are being targeted you know i would guess the way the targeting works at the moment is do you know are you clearly a business network do you have something that we can compromise in order to get into that network and then whatever happens happens you say it's hyper targeted but is it really because sometimes it feels like there's quite a lot of attacks that happen by accident um there's quite a lot where like they clearly thought the target was someone else <laughs> so I, ju- I just i'm curious as to like how targeted is targeted or are we just basically saying targeted in the context of like businesses uh, yeah so targeted in the context that they're not just sending ten thousand emails out as a Got massive ya. campaign Got ya. like yeah. they're being more they're, they're being target selective and is it is it that maybe is, is it the reason that they we get these random ones and the ones that the, the group didn't really mean to hack is it because the affiliates are just going out hacking yeah. anyone and, yeah, they, and they're like we don't care so so they just go and find you know a pipeline and they didn't really mean to hack it but they they don't care because they're getting their affiliate amount the affiliates want their 18 to 20 percent so uh they'll they'll take any target now we have seen and i i caveat this with this is coming from the words of the attackers uh, we have seen them say they are selective about things they won't compromise. So we see the big groups come out and say they won't accept affiliates who have compromised uh, anything to do with COVID or anything to do with healthcare, which is kind of strange because we still see healthcare being impacted quite often. Mm. Uh, but again, like how much of that is down to the ransom operators and how much of that is down to just affiliates just getting whatever they can? That is hard to know unless you're you're on the inside track there. And so when we think about how they do, um, not just how they do their targeting, but what sort of initial um, attack vectors there are, like what are the ways that they're getting in to these organisations? I'm assuming you're going to say it's the usual things, but do we see any particular prevalence for, you know, either exploiting particular kinds of vulnerabilities or you know doing a lot of spear phishing or is there any kind of pattern to it or does it just vary group by group there actually is a kind of a pattern to it uh, and i know it was cove where I released a report that has some really interesting um stats on it but the top three or four uh, initial access vectors are standard phishing um RDP access, um, so stolen RDP credentials or brute forcing RDP credentials. Uh, And then we have the uh, more traditional service exploitation, so things like SSL, VPN appliances, F5, salt stack, uh, that kind of stuff. And then the final one, uh, supply chain, actually accounting for a very small percentage. So we see uh, attacks that leverage uh, big security appliances like F5 or Salt Stack, and those that compromise the supply chain get like lots of media attention, mm. but actually they account for a relatively small number of initial infectious. That's still mostly RDP access and phishing. We are seeing a shift, uh, and this isn't specific to ransomware, but we are seeing a shift with attackers, both uh, financially motivated and APT motivated, uh, moving to 
uh, misusing legitimate services like Google, like Dropbox, mm. like Firebase, um, because they're so hard for security teams to filter out. Like, how can I, if I'm a corporate Dropbox user, how can I tell the difference between you downloading a PDF uh, from our services when it just goes to api.dropbox.com versus you downloading malware from somebody else's uh, malicious server that still goes to api.dropbox.com? This is where zero trust architectures come in to be like more of a preventative. So, yes, we accept that one user gets compromised, but then what the impact of that user users getting compromised like zero like zero ish is it feasible zero trust i mean i I like the idea of it but is it actually feasible can you really do it not i've never seen a perfect zero trust implementation Uh, like i've seen lots of like architectural designs i've seen lots of principles um but they're either so cost prohibitive or they're so impactful on day-to-day actually being able to do stuff that they just become like impractical to deploy. Availability so versus yeah, confidentiality, isn't it? The classic. The CIA triad. It's fine if you just make it not available to anyone. <laughs> is that on your, that on your WordPress? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so zero trust isn't the... Um, so what I was uh, uh, stretching for there, Kev, is that zero trust would be a, uh, the silver bullet to... Uh, to prevent this and probably it would be but then you'd be out of business because nobody can use the systems <laughs> uh, so you might as well you might as well go out in, in a blaze of glory under a ransomware attack rather than just like limp off into the into the into the failure bucket because you couldn't get anything done the, 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 there's a hybrid approach there are definitely some zero trust principles uh, that you can bring in and apply uh, to limit your risk to limit your exposure without going full zero trust I just this is the thing I super struggle with right so in a in a cloud native uh, sort of organization structure you're using Microsoft 365 you're you got users on their own uh, users on laptops you've not got your own network per se because everything's cloud software as a service in those situations are those organizations more resilient to a ransomware attack because we're not hearing people's you know OneDrive getting all encrypted there's always still there's always still servers though aren't there there's still a place where all of your documents are stored that's what i'm looking to encrypt but if it was google drive could they could they encrypt it if it was google drive yeah so if it was in microsoft 360 if you had no on prem servers no hard drives no nas no you know stuff like you encrypting the user's end devices, but apart, apart, you know. So there's there's two things there. So one, it's still completely valid. So uh, if you've got uh, if you've got uh, so if we're talking uh, Google or OneDrive, if you've got the streaming driver installed that maps those things to your to a drive on your box, ransomware's still going to encrypt them. Now, what you get by having those cloud services is an easier way to mm. recover. So those things typically come with really good version control. So you can just go restore this entire drive to a point like two days ago. Uh, so you, you should be able to recover much easier in those kinds of environments, but it doesn't stop you being affected by the initial impact. Is that happening a lot and we're just not hearing about it because it doesn't take, take anyone down because they're like, oh yeah, we just got hit, let's restore. Uh, when we talk about like people going cloud native, it's usually you've moved your... Active Directory services to the cloud, or you've moved your 
uh, email services to the cloud. Like if you're a large organization, you've still got people in your office buildings, so you've still had to go with switches, and then you've still got firewalls, and you've still got routers. Uh, so, like, it's only small businesses or small to medium enterprise, which is really truly completely cloud native, and they're not going to yield. 10 million 11 million dollar ransoms yeah. oh i see so the juiciest targets are those that are older organizations with or with bigger organizations that have more infra mm. and also it's interesting like just recently that you know talking about they've got more infrastructure there's direct connection that we've seen in the last two highly publicized attacks it's the operational technology required by those businesses to do what they do that has ended up almost being their biggest weakness right and that has meant that they've ended up being a great target for ransomware um so here's an interesting question and i think max and chris are not allowed to answer because you probably heard this earlier so for paul uh, what does that mean i have to listen uh how many banks have you seen ransomware in the last year or 18 months or three years or four years i don't know that i've seen it is there any so there was a swift Breach, oh yeah, but that wasn't, wasn't ransomware. ransomware. No, was there a Latin America bank? Something happened. Kev is so happy with with your answer. Like, I, I, yeah. So, like, I actually had to. I was looking for this up earlier. I can't find uh, any uh, mention of banks being ransomware, and I think the reason is they all use immersive labs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I think the reason is you can get more money by doing something like attacking the SWIFT network or just taking the money than you can by ransoming them. Yeah, just steal the money from the, the users. I'm not entirely sure about that. Well, if you threaten the uh, integrity of the financial... So if you attacked a bank... When we had this, Northern Rock, right? During the financial crisis, Northern Rock, there was a run on the Northern Rock Bank because confidence went... And that precipitated like real um, stress on the UK's financial institution, which meant the government had to go in and buy all those banks at the time. Or they just have better security. I mean, that is, of course, a possibility. It is a possibility that it is much harder to hack a bank due to their increased investment in security. I mean, that's not saying they're, that's not saying it's impossible to hack them. Hang on, but I it's a, this is an interesting line of thought because I really like really like the idea that there were attacks, there were more attacks, successful attacks perpetuated that the victims don't know about, and therefore aren't reported than there are successful attacks that the victims know about and therefore get reported. So. Is is that what you're saying? That there's an iceberg. We're seeing the iceberg of the ransomware attacks that are getting reported, but the but the affiliates in the ransomware model are getting into banks and going, "Well, I'm not giving this to a ransomware uh, com- uh, organization. I'm just going to siphon off funds myself, or or or, or something of those, or card uh, numbers, or yeah, personal I mean, information, like, or whatever it is." We know that Fin Six, Fin Seven, Carbonac, they're like they're all about getting in, getting access to accounts, like affecting point of sale systems so they can siphon money off that way. And they will earn more in the long term by staying in there quietly uh, and gaining access to those networks than they will. I would agree there is, there's more PCI DSS compliance around these. So they have to be much tighter 
uh, around the resilience, uh, around their ability to respond, around segregations, network security. So there are a lot more like mandatory things they have to do, which companies like JBS, Garmin are not required to. And if you're not required to, why would you spend the money to? But carding is also a, a massive thing, right? Carding kind of put the, yeah. the dark web on the market, and that is literally just taking credit card numbers, selling them on the dark web, and you get, I think it varies in price, doesn't it? But you get 50 quid a card if it's got like a black Amex card or whatever. So why not steal the numbers, sell them on the dark web, and then a bad guy's paying you. So you just stay quiet and carry also, on. Also, you're not going to limit yourself to a single technique, are you? Like if you're if you are an individual who is a ransomware affiliate, but who is capable of accessing a network, like hacking it in some way, you are not only going to have ransomware in your in your arsenal, we, are you? Yeah, we need you're going to gonna have other stuff that you could you know potentially do once you're on that network. So I think Paul's point is probably right. I, I I wonder whether they just don't see it as being as useful for a, for financial services as it is for as it is for other kinds of companies. Can we take a step back from, can we just, because I want to make sure that we have the conversation about, you know, organizations that find themselves victims of of ransomware. We talk about this stuff a lot because we do these cyber crisis simulations as, um, as webinars. So, you know, stuff we talk about a lot, but I'm just keen to, I'm keen to get to that bit next. So we've talked about how they get in. We've talked about like so so once they're in and they deploy the they deploy the ransomware and the organization that is being attacked finds you know out that they are that they've been attacked or that they've got files that are encrypted um they're then obviously in a position where they have choices to make the first of those choices is do you pay or not and so what is it that drives the kind of thought process towards you know paying it or not well, i don't know if you've read the article about colonial pipeline because the ceo saying he put the interests of the country first yes by, i did see by... well, that's because he appeared in front of the senate yeah. committee didn't yeah. he and even that in and of itself shows you where we've got with yeah. this threat but the, the idea of, of someone going in front of congress saying i've just given millions of dollars to a criminal and that's because i'm putting the country first is a very strange place to to be well i think we've been We've been talking about this, like Chris says, on our crisis in webinars for a long time now. And I've been a kind of hot, like <laughs> a proponent a for paying. <laughs> well, but only because, well, firstly, because in those things, I play a role. I play a caricature of a C suite executive yeah. who, and we force the scenario into this where we're Cause balancing. Because he's, he's not a proper one. That's why he has to play a, play a caricature <laughs> of one. Play a caricature of one. Um, where we balance the need for security, the security sort of community, and what's best, and the 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 natural tendencies to want to investigate and know more and do it properly, and all that kind of good stuff, against business pressures and coming from shareholders. You play that role though, and but but like we we say, it's a kind of caricature, but in fact. I, I think mostly we say, oh yeah, you don't pay, but actually people do, right? And that's why it's important uh, yeah. for you to play. I, that I think it, I think I think in the in the minds of, and this is where this interesting straddle across, like you know, the, and and Paul alludes to this all the time. The kind of the the cyber, the cyber people, right? The, the, the cyber people versus Kevs. you know the, the Kevs <laughs> of this world versus those who need to make you know 
decisions about business continuation and resilience under this kind of pressure, those two mindsets, you don't realise quite how different they are until you're in one of these scenarios thinking about whether you pay a ransom or not. Well, absolutely. And 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 the and then all the things that you hold hold dear to yourself, like your disaster recovery plans and your backups, all well, that all goes out the window as well. I mean, even in and we see this in real life today. We can talk about it in the scenarios, and we we don't pay, we do pay. Like it's always, I mean, it's always eighty percent people saying on our webinars, yeah, I know, we definitely wouldn't pay, definitely wouldn't pay. Like. And in the real life, it's all—it's t- trending towards uh, of the ones that are out in the public, a hundred percent pay. And that's yeah. that's the strange thing, isn't it? That's the interesting part about those uh, crisis decisions. In that, when you're not in a crisis, people exactly. totally uh, don't act in the way they actually would in a crisis. Because we've been saying that for ages. Like I have said that in front of a whole. It's like, oh, you all voted that you'd never pay. Actually, eighty percent of you, at least, uh, are just lying, or, or you're wrong. <laughs> Well, no, it's not. I don't think it is to do with that. I think if you look in the context of the way these decisions are made, and if you look in the context of Colonial as an example, that is a decision devolved to the chief executive officer of that company for obvious reasons, because he doesn't have to have, the CEO does not have a um, cultivated over many years characterized view of a threat actor that says I refuse absolutely to pay money to these people because that is an it whether we like it or not that is a kind of emotional thing his rationale that you get what's quite interesting the headline of the article talks about how he was doing it for the good of the country but actually when you get into his um his uh, rationale you know he talks about it being the hardest decision he's ever made in his career like it, it obviously is not straightforward but I just think it's really interesting that sort of we don't pay we don't negotiate with terrorists we don't pay threat actors and then CEOs of companies saying my business has ground to a halt I think I <laughs> will paying. pay the money and, and I've got a key a button I can press it and I I that testimony I watched it um back and it's re- it's interesting because I think there's a shift in the way that you handle yeah. the um, the comms on this. We do this in the webinars as well, and in uh, in our colonial uh, version, there's a Providence, question. Providence pipelines. Sorry, Providence pipelines. There's a question that we uh, pose, which is we're at the end now we have to handle the media what what are we going to say and there's the kind of full transparency full disclosure norse hydro style this is everything that happened we're going to lay it all out there tell everybody it. and kev always of course goes for that he loves it he wants to know every single bit about it because he's a practitioner he, he and, and and there's a massive massive benefit for that for the community the kind of like sharing community you know pay it forward kind of uh, mentality if if the defenders from um colonial providence in our scenario share everything that happened then the everybody defending the other pipelines can learn from that and make not make the same mistakes and of course kev goes for that and our audience generally Mm. go for that then we offer a second tier which is a slightly more like hey some bad stuff happened like we'll uh, but we're back to but we're back together then. Sorry for in, in, inconvenience. And I think probably a month ago that was the line that everybody was taking. It was pretty much like it was semi-transparent. It told said there was a ransomware, but not really how bad it was. Like you couldn't really learn anything from it. Um, just the fact of. 
The third option we offer in that is deflection. Mm. And uh, a month ago, the deflection option was the cowardly one. It was like, we're not going to use this deflection option. Like, who would use this? It's like, it's sort of like blaming everybody else, kind of like, just knock it back. But I think what we're seeing now, and we saw it in that Senate hearing, is that, oh, I couldn't have done anything about it. It was ransomware. Those bad criminals attacked me. And for the good of the country, I paid the ransomware because uh, I needed to get my pipeline back on track. There was literally no responsibility. Uh, That CEA took no responsibility for the security weaknesses that let them in in the first place and blamed, uh, you know, circumstances rsa it's the rsa apt defense isn't it basically basically um you know i'm not prepared to say this is a failure with the way that the network was configured and what's happened is i'm bound to say i feel like the government particularly the u.s government intervention now in these attacks is whilst welcome up to a point is now creating an environment that says hey you know what ransomware is basically undefendable so if it happens to you and you pay the ransom don't worry you're going to get away with any reputational damage for that because you know what ransomware is basically pretty impossible to defend against which of course is not actually true no threat is impossible to defend against so it's kind of creating this the environment that allows for that kind of claim you know, I paid, um, and then obviously the government then intervening to go and, you know, recover funds as well. Is what we're seeing here a failure of private sector and also info security, cyber security companies? Is it a failure of those companies to offer solutions that defend these organisations appropriately and effectively, and therefore we're having to fall back on government? Or is it actually that there's been a cavalier attitude towards cybersecurity within the victims. Do we have to fall back on the government because it actually is impossible to defend against these attacks? Cybersecurity tools exist to combat this threat. What I would say is they've become almost prohibitively expensive. If you look at the cost of them now, some of it is absolutely extortionate for what they're doing. Well, but, I mean, compared to a ransomware payment, they're probably cheap, aren't they? I mean, that's the... I don't know. Like, I've I really? Seen, I've seen solutions get up to, like, quarter of a mil per year uh, that you're paying for for the tier of access. So if you think five years, like, you've got the solution, and I, maybe it would be cheaper to pay a ransom. Uh, like, these security solutions get very expensive, and they're not infallible. And I think if you're a... If you're a like on the smaller side of large enterprise, you can't afford that. You've got to remember that your security team are loss makers. They don't make any revenue for you at all. They just sink capital. Well, until you get, until until you get, get ransomed. Yeah. And then suddenly it doesn't look like a big investment, it's like does it? It's like insurance, isn't it? It's like insurance. And it, no, one wants insu- no one wants insurance either, do they? Um, until... You know, that, well, they see it. They see a premium as being a prohibitive mm. thing and a thing that doesn't help. Doesn't However, help I can go and find the cheapest uh, insurance, and they all provide the same thing, mm. more or less. Like you don't have that much scale and scope with good uh, info security tools. Um, so let's imagine. Let's imagine we're not going to pay. We've talked a lot about the ins and outs of paying. Let's imagine we're not going to pay. What are 
our alternatives. Like the first alternative and what used to be given as the advice, you know, back in the day was, you know, well, as long as you've got, you know, good backups, you'll be all right. So maybe if we're operating on that assumption and we say, okay, we're not going to pay the ransom, we're going to restore from backup. What is actually involved in that process and where are the risks there? Of course, if the attackers have had un unrestricted or relatively unrestricted access to your networks, they're going to have either poisoned the backups your backups or poisoned yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the other thing, of course, is that your backups are they? How long ago are they? How old are they? Yeah, and if uh, I mean, if you people have gone back to tape backups because of ransomware, so you know because um, we all moved to cloud. Cloud's a great idea. It's off-prem. You know, blah blah blah. Cloud is amazing. And then ransomware comes along. It's like, oh, okay, it's not amazing because. But with tape backups, you can actually physically take the thing out. It's gone in a, a you know, the the ransom where uh, people aren't going to have had access to it. Um, but again, it depends on how long they've been in. Have they been poisoning the, that backup? And how, yeah, how far back do you want to go as well? And then the other problem that you've got is that you don't know how they got in in the first place yeah. at this point normally, and we do this in the scenarios as well. And so if you don't know how they got in, then restoring from backup doesn't, doesn't fix anything. Just, get back and you've upset them because you haven't paid the ransomware. Now, I'm no security architect or anything, but surely it seems to me there is an opportunity here for somebody to build, given that data is so commoditized and it's all in the cloud, Surely there is an opportunity here for somebody to build a solution that basically, without using credentials, duplicates your entire infrastructure and puts it somewhere else. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why you don't have write-only write backups where you can't do anything to them. They just go off to a different cloud somewhere else, write, yeah. write it into, and, and no one can access it apart from you've got maybe a private key in a safe somewhere on a piece of paper. And then if the worst happens, you just go, oh, let's go and... Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think... We should do that as a company. So. I solved it. Done. <laughs> fixed it. Oh, okay. So Done. it wasn't a stupid idea. I felt like it was going to be a stupid idea. I mean, we used to make a big thing about, you know, in the, in the context of marketing, we used to make a big thing about, you know, uh, think of the impact on your share price, you know, if you get attacked and all this kind of stuff. But I think what we're starting to learn is that cyber attacks are kind of a moment in time um, and you might see a short term, you might see a short term hit, but assuming that you're going to get back up and running, of course, that doesn't that doesn't account for the anomalies. Travelex is a bit of an anomaly and it's a weird anomaly because it's not just, it wasn't just to do with the attack. So imagine that you, imagine that you're in a situation where you've got everything offline, you're, you're, not choosing to pay the ransom you don't have it you know you may not have the ability to restore from um from backups what do and then we have organizations that bring in incident response services so if you look at um norse kydro as an example they then brought in incident response service and i was trying to figure out what is it that those services then actually do are they just scaling up expertise that you already have to be able to try to recover systems manually or what's the deal i suspect what they're doing in the first instance is trying to find out what what the attackers had access mm. to so they're doing the yeah. forensics so they're going back from they're just pulling that thread working backwards to find out how they got in what changes have they made like doing yeah. the forensics doing it for law enforcement as well i suppose whatever good that is but could it ever be as expensive as paying the ransom I, I can't imagine so. Dep well, it depends on the, the price, but I, I suppose it depends how long you engage them for. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole load of factors. But I, it, I suppose, I suppose what 
what's the point you can so you can find the instant response the instant response people will find out maybe how they got into your network and and that will help you patch it um but in long long term is that you're still gonna be offline um yeah you're gonna need backups as well you know it's it's not it's not the it's definitely never the fastest option is it Let's draw to a close by talking about this kind of emerging political discourse around uh, around ransomware more generally. And of course, the reason this has come to the fore is because once you start getting to a place where supplies of things like food and fuel are threatened, that sort of stokes the, you know, it, it kind of fans the flames of, of of political discourse because now there's there are concerns that, you know, will what's the next thing to be hacked that could, you know, that could bring infrastructure grinding to a halt. Um, and there are two interesting things, interesting stories and bits of comment that came off the back of First Colonial and then the JBS, the meat, the meat supplying um, uh, hack. And those were, first, that the Biden administration was considering a military response to ransomware. I mean, I don't even know what that really looks like. It's interesting you say because that's exactly what I was. As it ramps up, you would expect it to become a U.S. Let's say U.S. versus Russia thing. If it's mm. if it's cyber war, um, most of these seem to be based in Russia. There has been a long link um, between online criminals and the Russian government in that they they actually explicitly there, there was a meeting. Um, I think it was in. Uh, in Ukraine, actually, in early 2000s, where the FSB said to this group of hackers, anything you do in the West is fine, but if you touch Mother Russia, you're going to the gulag for some time. Uh, so, and that was a kind of agreement then, and I'm sure it, it seems like it continues today, because Russia could, if they wanted to close these these um, groups down, I would guess, mm. could do it quite easily. So I would assume at some point it's going to ramp up so much that you know, we we they will hack them in in as much as we're just going to trash everything you have. Um, they they'll you know they could be able to identify them physically and you know whether it'll be Russian operations in as well as cyber operations. I know things like that may or may not happen already in in the world going 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 around the world that cyber operations are combined with. You know what I do? What would you do? I just had a great idea about this. Oh, You'd just false flag it, wouldn't you? So if I wanted to take down Darkseid, I just take Darkseid's servers, attack a Russian government target, <laughs> yeah, mm, very good as Darkseid, and then the Russian government would do all the work. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, do there, all the work be for you. Uh, what's interesting though is that the so the the idea of what kind of intervention this might be. Um, so the Commerce Secretary, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, was asked, "Is military action being considered?" And the answer was that the administration was looking at all of the options to defend the US against ransomware criminals. And also that this um, is this issue of um, Russia kind of harboring um, cyber cyber criminals um, is now on the agenda for Biden's meeting with Putin. So that means that Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin will discuss cyber criminals being harboured in Russia and deploying ransomware in a summit meeting in Geneva. I mean, I think that is just... Yeah, that's, it's massive. That's, that's mad, isn't it? That's, that's and, massive. And you, they could go as far as going, okay, well, we're going to 
uh, we're going to do sanctions. So we, there's nothing yeah. else we can do. So by the way, all your houses in London and blah blah blah, wherever else, are now ours. And that, I I think that would pretty rapidly put a stop to ransomware if if the sanctions. But are do you up. will it, or do you think the actors would just that there's enough ransomware act? There's enough bad actors out there that they would start to come from a different country. Or if Russia did say, actually, we've changed our laws. It is now illegal to uh, conduct hacking operations anywhere in the world. I I would think that if Russia decided to stop ransomware, it would stop ransomware. I I believe. Yeah, there's a really interesting dynamic happening in on the on the government in the the government side of things because there is some like you shouldn't pay the ransom. Um, you know, very very strong. You might argue potentially hyperbolic, um, you know that kind of stuff. And then, uh, and then in the next breath, you've got the U.S. government intervening to recover, <laughs> to recover cryptocurrency payments. So, but the thing is, the politicians are already using this language. Like the U.S. Energy Secretary is saying things like, you know, uh, um, you know, cyber actors have the capability to shut down power grids. She's using that language, so it's setting up, it's building this climate of fear around um around ransomware and using it also i think politically this is the other thing that i would add using it also politically as a way to almost showcase the cyber chops of the new um of the new administration and i would say as a person who understands enough about cyber security i'd say that's worked wouldn't you I mean, they've recovered the they've recovered some of the ransom. They're being very bullish in their language about you know how much action they're prepared to take. I think it all seems like quite good news. Yeah, I, d- I don't disagree with that, and it is good to see a, like a capable cyber agency operating. The thing that I'm not, the thing that I think I'm a bit worried about is that it has that it has, it will allow private sector organizations to abdicate responsibility yeah. this is too big for us it's now government's problem yeah. and that and then so then for the government to operate like that then they're going to have to legislate and if they legislate like that makes me a little bit worried because what are they going to say like i i don't know there was some uh, it was on, on our own podcast in there there was some talk about um making it uh, illegal to or mandating certain doing some mandatory stuff in terms of appsec and and like and and then overnight um we it will be uh, everything will be bug free like, <laughs> like hello yeah but it's, it's it's also quite interesting the um so the deputy attorney general um of california after this said that the the seizure was only possible because colonial pipeline operators got the fbi involved early and so uh, he urges other victims to come forward and, and the FBI. So <laughs> it is going to generate loads as, yeah. more. That's going to generate loads more work for the FBI. Before yeah. you know it, it'll be like the oh, FBI, the FBI is like a massive it. strain yeah. because they can't. Yeah. yeah. So it's then then it's yeah, as you said, Paul. It's just putting it. Oh well, we couldn't do anything about it. So it's a government issue. Yeah. FBI will well, do exactly. it, and and they'll recover the funds I for d- us. I I fear for that. So yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this all develops. Anyway, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at ImmersiveLabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs. If you want to hear Kev talking about (laughs) McDonald's, uh, he'll be on Fox Business at some point. Um, Until next time, from all of us, goodbye. Goodbye.